Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby with Sam Bygrave, that's me. My guest today is Ross Blaney. He's the ambassador for the Balvenny and Glenfiddich and not shy of a real discussion about the whiskey world. It's actually a recording of a talk I did with Ross over Zoom last year for an event called How Whiskey Works. And in it, Ross shares some insight into how he goes about his job, where the whiskey world is at right now. We talk about marketing and new whiskey products and how that works. It's a chat that I really enjoyed and got a lot out of. The reason for the repurposed podcast is that I'm on the road in Brisbane this week getting a look at the bars and which it's nice to hear from the bartenders that I've been talking to, it seems like things are getting a little bit back to something more resembling normal. After two pandemic years and some god awful floods recently, that is welcome news. I'll be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, this episode is sponsored by Australian Cocktail Month. It's a great initiative to get people back into the bars and it takes place this May. One ticket gets you access to exclusive cocktail menus in 144 bars across 12 cities for the entire month of May. You can learn more about it at australiancocktailmonth.com.au and follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Australian Cocktail Month. Now, my chat with Ross Blaney. Uh, welcome, Ross. Hello. Hi. How you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Doing good. Thanks very much for having me on for a chat. I'm looking forward to this. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I was just checking that we're all live and everything. There's a whole little setup going on back here. We're good. We're good uh, to go. On a slight delay, so it freaks me out a little bit that everything's not working, but we're good. We're good. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just want to set the table a little bit for uh, the people watching. Um, Whiskey, it's fair to say, is probably more popular than it's ever been. Um, today, we're going to talk about how whiskey works. This isn't a how whiskey is made kind of chat or a brand chat. Um, and I've asked Ross to join us because I love talking shop with the guy. Um, we're going to ask him what it's like to work with whiskey, how he got his job, uh, why whiskey can command these sky-high prices that it sometimes does on the secondary market. Uh, we're going to explore some of the tensions between the marketing hype and uh, some of these big brand budgets that go along and how they sort of interact with the traditions and the craft of what is really quite an old spirit. Um, and then we'll also get to some of your questions at the end as well. Uh, if you're watching this, you're watching this on boothby.com.au and I very much appreciate you tuning in here. It means that you've subscribed to the newsletter and I thank you very much for that. We just celebrated our first year, um, looking at a big second year and there's no better way to kick it off than uh, with my good friend, Ross Blaney. So Ross, let's get that yes, out Yes, hello, yeah, <laughs> <Through the> notes. <laughs> Firstly, happy um, birthday. Happy first birthday, well, cheers thank to you. that. Thank you, cheers to you too. Cheers. <laughs> um, I wanna ask you first, how did you get here? How did you get your job as a brand ambassador working with whiskey? Mm. Um, yeah, it's always, uh, it's an interesting one to answer for that because the very short answer is, I don't really know. Um, but obviously, obviously, I'm not just going to leave it at that. Yeah, I just don't know. Okay, um, no, moving on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. No, I, I think uh, the reason I kind of think that is first off is because it wasn't uh, fully planned. And I don't think there's a set way of becoming a, a brand ambassador. Uh, but for me, anyway, I mean, it was a kind of, I don't know, meandering journey towards this job. I mean, I always worked in in and around bars, uh, hospitality, whiskey. Um, I started off in pubs when I was 18, 19, back in Scotland. That was where I found my love of whiskey. Uh, when I was 19, working in 
little pub called the Fox and Hounds in Houston. And the owner of the pub said to me and my mate Robin, if you guys want to learn about whiskey and you know sell it to the punters, you can tell me five single malts every week and I'll order them in. You can learn about them and sell them to the punters and you guys can have a taste of them. I think we were like, well, I mean, you've kind of sold us with that last bit there. If we get to taste them, then great, we'll do it. So yeah, that was where I kind of found my love of whiskey. And that was more reading the labels and finding like the backstory. I was just interested how they were all so different. All the distilleries had their own story and their own people. And that got me really connected with it. Um, and then went from there, went to work in a kind of fancy hotel in Glasgow, Hotel Divan, uh, where they had like five or 600 whiskeys. So I kind of got into that. Actually, my first ever whiskey tasting was for Flight of the Concords. The guys from Flight of the Concords. Yeah. I didn't even know who they were at the time. I was like 19, 20. I had no idea who they were. But that was the first one I ever did. But yeah, from there, just uh, ended up over in Australia. I came over for three months. I'm still here now, 11 years later. I uh, worked in Iceland. Yeah, did I meet you as a when you were a brand ambassador for a wine company? Yeah, well, I, so, well yeah, so I started off, I left the bars when I came over here and did a sales job at a small spirits company where I started working with Tomatin Single Malt and then left there to do a national sales manager job for a, a kind of small to medium-sized wine company, which was really unexpected. I mean, I, I like wine, but it's not my passion or love. I think I just saw it as an opportunity to learn. I mean, the owner of the company said, do you want to come and be my national sales manager? And I said, I'm 24 and I've been doing sales for two years. Do you really want me to do that? I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it's okay. We'll show you how to do it. So it was a good opportunity. And I think getting that commercial backing and understanding was very helpful for moving into this role, which is where I went. I went from the wine company to here. A good friend of mine, you know, James Bunton, had kind of put me in touch with the right people at the right time, um, gave me a nudge in the right direction. and was like, you should go and be working for William Grant and Sons now, which I'm always appreciative of. Uh, I think it was the best step I ever made. I love working for this company. It's been a lot of fun. But yeah, that's kind of how I ended up here, um, through right. meandering through different jobs and learning as much as I could along the way. Right. Uh, a question I like to ask a lot of people that I, I speak to for the site and everything is, uh, why do you do what you do? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I assume you like your job. So, <laughs> what is it about it that you love? There are there are so many things about this job that I love, and it probably changes kind of week to week. There are different focuses that I have and different things. Obviously, the whiskey. I love whiskey. I love the the culture around it. Like everything from the liquid to the people to the stories to the distilleries to how it's changed things along the way. But I think specific to my job now, not just being about whiskey, but the brand ambassador role, it's it's getting to do cool stuff, really. That's what it is. Like You don't know what you're going to be doing. It changes all the time. And that uncertainty of what is going to be next is like, that's what inspires me. That's what keeps me going. Because I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know it's going to be something cool. That, that kind of keeps me going. Um, how does the brand ambassador role fit into the whole whiskey world, right? Uh, what, what, what is it? Some, what do you, what do you do every day? I know you're going to say it's a different, different thing every day, right? <laughs> it kind of, it kind of is, yeah. Standard, yeah, okay. It kind of changes. How does it fit though? Yeah, the, the main thing I, I think for brand ambassadors is you're a, a conduit for the brand itself and the personification of the brand. So you're not just there to just spout all the knowledge out you're supposed to 
kind of be a bit of the brand. Like someone can meet you and understand what the brand's like through your own personality. So like being your own person, understanding the brand, telling and passing on the stories and knowledge and information, but also yeah, being a bit of the personification of the brand, being yourself and helping people understand what what your brands stand for. Like talking about Balvenie and Glenfiddich, it's about helping people understand what are these brands all about? What is there behind them? So yeah, although it changes day to day, that's like the the basis, I think, anyway. Okay. Um, there's an image of the whiskey drinker that's like, uh, how do I put this? It's There's a certain demographic, it's probably skews a bit older, uh, often male, like that sort of mahogany and cigars and that sort of whiskey drinker kind of thing. It's been predominant in the past. I know it's changing, but I still see a fair bit of that. Mm-hmm. How do you think that is changing? Um, and how do you think that's going to look, say, in five years' time? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. It is changing so much. I think even when we were in the whiskey bars, you know, when we were sitting up at the back surround at the bar, you can see the type of people that are drinking whiskey now. I mean, we do that on occasion. <laughs> so they're going to have a few whiskeys. Uh, yeah, you can see the people changing. I think it's more inclusive now. I think there was so much marketing done in the past for whiskey that was pointed towards men. And that was a mistake on, on our part, on the whiskey industry's part. But now it is being so much more inclusive. And it's not perfect yet, but there's definitely a lot more movement towards having everyone. Because, I mean, whiskey's made for everyone. It's not like it was made for men. It's not like only men like the taste of it. It's a kind of weird thing to think of that. Like, why why would only men like the taste of something? It's not you know, it's not mutually yeah. exclusive. Yeah, it's definitely changing, which is a great thing. It's, yeah, you want to be drinking whiskey with everyone, I think. Do you, do you find that the uh, that you're serving more sort of younger people these days or, or is it still sort of, you know, 30, 40 plus kind of demographic that you're hitting? Yeah, it's probably, it probably is still a bit older. Um, but changing too. So I say, well, older as in, yeah, mostly I'd say like probably 30 and up. Um, but that's definitely changing as well. And I think that's down to brands being able to talk to their audience differently and changing perceptions. It's changing perceptions of whiskey. That's what we all have to work at, not just our brands, but everyone. Like changing it so that younger people, have, you know, maybe the 25, 26 year olds, that they do feel like they're part of whiskey. They don't feel like it's just something their dad drank, but they can be a bit more part of mm-hmm. it. But yeah, just well, do, you, do you think, yeah, do you, do you think that price can be a factor in this? Because a lot of times, excuse me, you see, you see, uh, especially with the secondary market, right? Some of these whiskeys that are out there are, are getting absolutely astronomical kind of prices. Mm. Um, is that something that brands like yours and other companies kind of caught? Do they want to have, like the hot whiskey that's really super rare on that secondary market, grabbing a sky high price, even though they're not the ones selling it and in charge of you know the supply of it. Is there a cachet that comes with that? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it is crazy. Like there are bottles that go for millions of dollars, like millions for one bottle of whiskey, which cost yeah. not an awful lot to make, like in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about. And it is something that brands want. Like you do, you want a little bit of that after sale market. I mean, the the headline of having the $2 million bottle sold at an auction with your brand in there, that's a, that's a good thing. You know, that's a, um, well, 
unpaid for PR that you're just getting out there because someone bought something they really wanted of yours. But it couldn't really be, have been planned for the stuff that's happening, the stuff that's happened over the last few years. You know, there are whiskeys that were made 50 odd years ago or whatever. So they maybe weren't like planned to be sold like that. But now that it's happening, I think all the brands are looking at, okay, how do we make a super collectible whiskey that in five years or whenever is going to be that one that's up there. So yeah, I think it's an important part. Yeah, I'm assuming the distilleries aren't planning sort of down the 50-year mark, maybe, or maybe they are, I don't know. Uh, is there someone in the market department going like, okay, this is what we're thinking about for 50 years' time? Uh, yeah, I suppose there will be a little bit, yeah. The, I think they, yeah. you need to. The whiskey is such a, it's a patient game. I know David Stewart, our malt master, uh, he always he says, you know, he doesn't think he's a patient person, but when it comes to whiskey, you just have to be patient. You have to be able to look forward and, I mean, planning even just for our Doublewood 12, for our youngest whiskey, you have to plan 12 years in advance, like how much we're making now and putting in barrels. So, yeah, you do have to plan that far ahead. 50 years, though, it's like, yeah, half a century planning in advance. That's a, that's a nightmare. <laughs> that's a yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm making plans for myself in 50 years. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, on that topic, though, like where do these ideas for releases come from? Uh, are they coming from the distillery, uh, the people making the stuff, uh, mm. you know, on the grounds there, or is it something that's more driven by a marketing department? How much does marketing drive what ends up in a bottle and out to the world? Yeah, I think I can only really speak from my experience with William Grant and Sons, and I assume like it's very similar to the other companies. There's definitely both. So, and it's good that there's both. I think sometimes you see whiskeys come out and you'll get the, the, the purists of whiskey. They'll say, well, that's a, a marketing thing that that's come from, obviously. But it's a good thing that we have marketing teams that can come up with these ideas. And I think the first thing is that, like our marketing teams are made up of whiskey lovers and whiskey experts, maybe not 100% of the team, but the ones who aren't maybe like full on whiskey experts, they're the marketing geniuses. So the collaboration between marketing teams and our distilleries and whiskey makers is really important because if you look at even the uh, Glenfreak 21, the Grand Reserva, you know, that was created back in 2001, um, you know, potentially the first rum finished whiskey. And that came from our, our Glenfreak Global marketing team, kind of wanted to do something with whiskey and cigars and like a kind of Cuban rum thing and with the whiskey and having a bit of a luxury feel to it and having the cigars and whiskey, like great idea. So they went to David Stewart and had a chat with him and said, we'd like to do something with rum and like a more aged whiskey, what can we do? Uh, luckily, David had been playing around with cask finishing all, like 15 years ago, he'd been looking at rum finishes. And as soon as they said to David that we want to do something with rum, David knew what he wanted to do. So you got the 21-year-old Glenfiddich and finished it in these rum barrels. So the, the whiskey idea of what to make came from David creating that, but the kind of catalyst that set it off came from marketing. So I think, yeah, there's got to be a bit of both. Right. Some will come from more whiskey, some will come from more marketing, but I think you, you need that. What happens What happens if the marketing people don't come around and go, hey, we need something in this sort of rum cast? Because that rum cast is just going to sit there yeah, <laughs> forever not being drunk? Or... Well, I think in that case, David had been playing around with the rum finishing like in the mid-80s, and he knew what he liked about it, but he just hadn't released anything. Just there wasn't quite a, 
a reason to release it at that point. And also a different time in whiskey. Like back then, it wasn't release as much as you can. You know, now there are so many different releases from so many different distilleries. 80s and 90s, it wasn't quite like it is now. It's changed a lot. So I think yeah, David was just sitting on that one. I, I love that he was just sitting on that, waiting for the right time to release rum finished whiskey. This, you're right. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm assuming the marketing department can't see what's what's where things are and everything in the warehouse. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, they know a little bit. They go in there for a little taste every so often if they can get in there. I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. I, I do want to talk to you about um, barrels and barrel finishes, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of that, so much of the whiskey that's out there on the market is driven by, oh, it's a sherry cast this or it's a, a sauterne cast that. Um, so many of them are differentiated by the type of barrels that you use. And I know that you've been to Spain, you've been down to Jerez, right? So yep. uh, learn more about this. What's How does that whole system work? Because surely... Uh, I love sherry. Uh, a lot of people I know like sherry, but most of the public doesn't drink the stuff. Um, and I'm sure it's the same in other countries. I'm sure it's, it's not huge in China. Uh, mm -hmm. They can't be making that much sherry that they can supply. The oh, sorry. Oh, hang on. You still there? Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry, I lost you for yeah, a minute yeah. there. Oh, good. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I caught oh, no, you're back. Okay. Uh, yeah, so basically, <laughs> how's it working? Yeah, with yeah. The, uh, I got, I got with the barrel the stuff. Part. Are the show... Okay. The, uh, the producers down there, are they making basically barrels for the Scotch whiskey industry? And how sustainable is that sort of thing? Yeah, it's an amazing place, like Henrith. I went there last January. It's it's so beautiful, and their whole industry is set up. A lot of it now is to create barrels for the whiskey industry. Like you said, there's not as many people drinking sherry as there was, and the barrels that they make for the Scotch whiskey industry, you're looking at nine hundred, maybe a thousand pounds a barrel. So they're they're expensive, and they're not easy to make. You know, the whole process going through, like. It takes about twice as long to grow a European oak tree as it does American oak. So for starters, just from the tree, it's potentially twice as expensive because it's twice as hard and twice as long to do it. But then going through the whole process, everything they have to do with that wood, all the way through curing it, building the barrels, and then essentially seasoning it with the sherry, it's a long process, but it adds so much to the whiskey industry, like sherry cask whiskies are it's like a kind of a, a buzzword in whiskey at the moment it's what people really like you know the the whiskey geeks and everyone else you see a sherry bomb like oh that's that's what we want but the thing that really interests me and i think we've we spoke about this before is that most of the time it's not about the sherry influence although we call it they are ex sherry casts all are also sherry for the most part we're really looking for the influence from european oak and the sherry's in there to kind of take the edge off the oak the same as we do with bourbon. You know, we just don't like having new barrels most of the time. So in America, bourbon's in there for a couple of years, takes the edge off the barrels, so it takes a little bit of the flavor. And it's essentially the same in Jerez. I know when David started working um, with Miguel Martin um, in the 80s, you know, that's what they wanted. They wanted it to 
have sharing it for two years, take the edge off it, and then send the barrels to us. So yes, yeah, it's, it's an amazing process, but it does make a big difference to to whiskey and price. So it's so it's not not actually sherry flavor that you're looking for. It's the European oak that you're talking about, is it? Because like we 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 shared a bottle of uh, I think it was the Balvenny the sherry cast single barrel, the 15 year old. And that was delicious, but it had this bright, rich red color, kind yeah. of like my face at the minute. Um, and, and, but that's not from the sherry you're saying, that's from the oak. No, yeah, most of the time, usually there are um, there are other versions of that, like PX sherry, which we will get a lot more influence from. But for the most part, the flavor that you get that is similar to what you recognize in sherry is because they're both in the same barrel. They both get some flavor from that oak. So it's the European oak that is yeah. giving the flavor to both the sherry a, a little bit and also to whiskey. And that dark color, it's the wood for the most part. It's the wood and not so much the sherry. Okay. But so the follow-up there is, what's the point of calling it a sherry bar? You can just chuck any old wine in there, could you? <laughs> you uh, kind of. And we kind of do as well. We've got Madeira <laughs> casks and port. Like anything that has had something in it before is useful. And there will be a little bit of influence from what's in there, but the majority of the influence is the oak. And there are different ways of doing it. So you can do it so that you'll get more influence from the liquid that was in there and less of the oak. So there's different ways of doing it. But for the most part, it's it really comes down to the, the wood. Um, yeah, we're talking about sherry barrels. European oak's the, the star, really. Okay. But if you're, like, producing a sherry-like wine five miles out of the deal of, of Hereth, mm. you're screwed. You know, you're not going to get paid. But Yeah, that's it. Like you can't, Is that right? If you're selling your barrels to Scotland and you're making your wine outside of the sherry triangle, you're not. it's not sherry that's in the barrels, so you can't give them away as sherry barrels. You'll notice on some labels now it will say Oloroso, finished in Oloroso casks, because you can call it Oloroso, but you can't call it sherry if it's made outside of that. So you can maybe get a, maybe a better deal or maybe, maybe better barrels as well, but you're not as limited to that area, but you can't say it's a sherry barrel. You'd have to say it's an Oloroso barrel. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds well, crazy. <laughs> that leads me to my next topic though, which is I'd like to push a bit more into the marketing side of things. And yeah. how much of what we, uh, how, how important is the marketing thing to the whole whiskey exercise uh, to what gets into my glass at home, how much of a role does it play? Or, you know, because um, I, I find that, it, you know, it uh, doesn't matter what media you're exposed to, if you're reading a magazine or you're online or you're watching a show on TV with a bit of product placement in it, um, that can shape your perceptions of whatever the whiskey is. Does mm -hmm. that change how it tastes when you're at home drinking it from the glass? Probably. I mean, probably. I think you're right. We're influenced by everything that's around us all the time. And it changes how you think about everything. So it must be the same for whiskey. If you're in a, if you're having a great day and then you have a whiskey, you're much more likely to enjoy it. Or if there's other factors, like I, I think with, with my job, there's a big part of when you're doing a tasting with a brand ambassador or with someone from the distillery and they're explaining the, the meaning and the love that's gone into it. I mean, I know when I'm talking about Balvenie and I talk about Dennis McBain, our head coppersmith that started in 1958 with us and telling stories about Dennis the Menace and, you know, when he got in trouble from his boss for losing a spanner. If you give people the background, then 
you can understand more of where it's come from. And yeah, you, you do enjoy things more when you know where they've come from because I, I don't, you can't help it if you... Well, See, I, I disagree. I, I would have disagreed with you at least. Uh, I, I used to like to think that you know it was just me in, and the liquid in the glass, and I was evaluating it objectively. But the older I get, I think um, I think the more realization I have that perhaps I'm not as objective as I thought I was. Perhaps uh, I don't want to get all meta and say there's no objective reality out of there because that's kind of just needs <laughs> wow, another couple of whiskeys to be honest. <laughs> But, I mean, you know, things taste better at the distillery. You know, things taste better yeah. when you're away with uh, a great uh, bunch of mates, you know, and you discover something for the first time. You bring it home, you're having it by yourself, maybe you had a bad day, and it kind of tastes a little bit rubbish. This, is, this worries me. This, <laughs> this is me making the argument for marketing, which I never used to do. <laughs> I, think, I think you can be objective as well. I mean, I hope, or I, I think, I, I don't know if I always want to be in that situation like i like to be influenced about the things around it so i can enjoy it more i think that's a for me anyway if i'm drinking a whiskey and i get the story and it tastes better than maybe it would if i was looking at it objectively i think i've won like if it tastes better and i'm enjoying yeah. it more great but yeah i think but also yeah. being able to look at them objectively is important to pick out flavor profiles yeah. yeah. Well, I, I did take, talk to um, Luke McCarthy, you know, uh, whiskey writer Luke McCarthy down from Melbourne, yeah. and he was saying that the process he goes through, because because he's uh, evaluating a whole bunch of whiskeys for his uh, website, Oz Whiskey Review. By the way, you should sign up and subscribe mm -hmm. to that. It's a fantastic. It's a steal. It's four dollars a month. It's genius. Yeah, brilliant. Excuse me. Um, but uh, he was saying that he just tries to keep his process perfect, right? Tries to repeat the same process. So it'll be the same room same type of glass, same sort of ambient temperature. And it, he tries to make it that that process the same every time. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that's changing, ideally, is the whiskey in the glass. Yeah, I think in that situation, and as Luke is a professional at doing that, and he'll be able to train himself to, I would imagine, kind of shut out a bit of the, the noise around the whiskey. Because even if he's, he'll know about the whiskey before it comes out or before it gets to him, so I imagine he'd be able to shut out a bit more of that through being good at what he does. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, this also feeds into, and I'm, you know, don't know if I really want to get into this topic, but I'm going to give it a shot. Let's go for it. Have things like that. <laughs> Why not? Uh, when you have the things like the the whiskey bible with Jim Murray and and some of these whiskey writers. they're reviewing you know hundreds of whiskeys a year, if not more, I guess. Um, and not always blind, I don't think. So they obviously know a little bit about the distillery and stuff. And then they come out and say, hey, this is the, the whiskey of the year or whatever. How much kind of stock do you put in those kind of reviews personally? I mean, you might might be conflicted because it might be a nice thing to check on the front of a bottle or something. Yeah, I think, I think personally, I don't, don't put much behind it, to be honest. Just for me, yeah. when making my decisions on whiskey, uh, I think having when it's just one person's opinion on what a whiskey's like and how good it is, I can't, I can't really subscribe to that. I mean, it's just one person's opinion. If it's like a whole, a whole panel of people looking at things, then yeah, I could get behind that. But also it's mm. so subjective. The whiskey is so subjective. I mean, some days I'll enjoy a whiskey and then the other day, maybe I don't enjoy it as much. Like we're just saying there, you know, there's other factors. So it's almost, I don't know if I, 
yeah, it's almost kind of ridiculous for someone to say that this is definitely the best whiskey in the world. Maybe for me, this is the best whiskey in the world, or one of the other ones. Like it's kind of how could kind of feels arbitrary. Yeah, I'm not saying the the ones that win it are you know usually amazing whiskies. Not taking anything away from them, but it's yeah. pretty hard to say this is definitely the best whiskey in the world. And I know because I've tried a bunch of them, and you haven't. Like, oh, I don't know. Well, I guess after you've had a hundred, you probably feel like you can say whatever's the best thing in the world, whenever. <laughs> yeah, um, <exactly>. <laughs> what? What? It, you and I, we've spent a fair bit of time in bars together talking, and uh, I know the Just bar right. industry bartenders are big fans of yours. Um, <laughs> what role does the bar world play for you? And communicating all your, your spirit stuff out to the rest of the public. And bars are so important. I mean, we spend so much of our time as brand ambassadors just working with bars. I think what's really important for for whiskey brands, kind of now and moving forward, is is just cultural relevance. That's what's important with well, with everything, with any brands, not just whiskey. Cultural relevance and a big part of culture in most countries is bar culture. You know, everyone goes to bars, they influence what you drink, bartenders influence what you drink and what you think as well, like conversations you have at bars. So the whole culture of a bar industry, it doesn't just shape what we do as, as a whiskey company, but it shapes what people in other industries do. It's like it's such a big part of most cultures. So, yeah, bars are so important, bartenders are so important, and they're the ones on the front line telling people about the drinks, the whiskey, the stories. So, and it's also a lot of fun working with bars. I mean, especially in Australia, there's some amazing characters, as you know. There's some incredible characters <laughs> to work with. They just, you just want to do more with them. I love doing more stuff with bars because it's just fun. On that topic, because we've had this conversation before, but uh, uh, while you're saying nice things about bartenders in Australia, we've had a conversation about uh, bartenders and the caliber of Australian bartenders stacking up against the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on that, boss Blaney? Because you're I, not going to lose any points by saying nice things about bartenders. <laughs> and uh, well, we have talked about this before, and I've had some great conversations with uh, with other people about it. I, I had a great conversation with um, with Cosmo Double Juice about this same thing, and he had some great points on it too. I, I just don't think Australian bars get the credit that they deserve on a global stage. Having been in these other countries and been in, in New York and London and everywhere else, they say there's the best bars in Singapore. Our, our bars are just as good and some of them better. And I'm not taking away from those other cities and what their bars are. I think it's because we're kind of at the end of the road, less people come here to see the bars. And like it's maybe as simple as that. Because if those people come here, Australian hospitality is great. And we've got so many amazing bars that. There should be way more, and the top fifty should be definitely more Australian bars in there. Yeah, well, that'll be uh, announced in a couple of weeks' time, I think. So fingers crossed. That's right. Yeah. Um, hopefully, <laughs> uh, let's talk about jobs working with whiskey uh, and how. Well, I've got a, a reader question as well. It was Andrea uh, who asked, um, "How does someone get into the whiskey alcohol brand ambassador kind of roles?" They wanted to ask you. Um, mm. And then I'll ask you a bit more broadly, what are the kind of jobs working with whiskey in Australia that people can aspire to kind of pick up? I think getting into the whiskey industry, it depends what you want to do. I think for a brand ambassador, like I said, from my own journey into it, I don't think there's a set journey into being a brand ambassador. 
the normal one is going from bartender to brand ambassador. But I think you could come from any industry into it. You need to have a very good understanding of bars and bar culture and be able to do that. But you could be from another another industry as well. And I think then it's it's to be a brand ambassador, you have to be able to communicate well. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to read a room. You have to have some emotional intelligence to actually talk to a lot of different people and you know tell them what they want to know about, but in in the right way, I think. And then it's just finding the right. Way. Yeah, it's easier said than done, I think. So well, yeah, I think that's it's a, a big part of it, and just finding the right place. That's probably a big one. If you're if you want to be a brand ambassador, you need to look at what brand ambassadors do. And if you're working in bars, you have a great opportunity to chat to brand ambassadors from all the different companies because they're all different and they're all expected to do slightly different things or maybe even vastly different things. So understanding that the brand ambassador role isn't just one thing and it's probably not what you think it is. I think being able to understand what a brand ambassador really does and work out which, which one do you want to do? What brand do you want to be in? What company do you want to be in? I think you really need to, there's a bit of homework to do before you decide you want to be a brand ambassador. It's not just, you know, having a cool job and going out drinking whiskey in bars. I mean, there's a lot, I mean, it's partly that as well, but there's there's so much more to it. So I think it's a bit of research. That's all I see. Yeah, that's what you see. Yeah, you know, there's more to it. You see like the Excel sheets on a, a monthly basis. And like, oh, God, this isn't what I planned. <laughs> 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 um, uh, oh, just on that topic while I got you talking about it do you ever get bored working with whiskey is it like something that you like but then once once you work with it it can become tiresome and repetitive and a little bit dull because I can tell you I'm not a big fan of the typing I can't stand typing but you know that's what I do that's a, that's a big part of what you do yeah <laughs> I, I think yeah. but, it, but maybe, maybe even the same as what, what you're doing with the it's different each time I'm not just talking about the same thing all the time. I, I don't get bored of it. I, I really don't. My job's changed a lot. We've coming up for five years with William Grant, and it's been every year's been completely different. Like my, I've been given a bit of the freedom to change my role along the way, and I'm very grateful to to my team, my bosses, for letting me do that. But yeah, it changes day to day. So these, you've got to keep it interesting for yourself too. I don't want to do the same whiskey dinner every week. I want to go and find interesting people to work with and work on a different menu or do a different type of event. So I think as long as you can keep keep things changing, uh, you shouldn't get shouldn't get bored of it. I mean, I'm not. Do you mean doing things like uh, I can see you've got the uh, that Glenfiddich Air Jordan thing kicking behind you? Oh yeah, yeah. Collaboration with Chase Shield. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned yeah. it yet. To be quite honest with you, so like you grab it if you want to talk about it. It's pretty can, cool. You just do this every so often, like. <laughs> well, yeah. yes, exactly. Like do, the sneakers was uh, something. Tell, I mean, I've tell us what the idea is. Yeah. Well, it, it really came from. So there's different aspects to it. There's the personal aspect where I've always loved sneakers, and you know, I got really into sneakers when I was when I was young. When I was playing basketball, and um, like having different basketball boots and different sneakers was always a big thing. And then I ended up looking at different boots when I was just in Balveni. So having different like custom handmade boots and I got really in, like super into that. Um, and then when I took on Glenfiddich, I was like, oh cool, now I can maybe do some sneakers with this. So it was a personal part, but also looking at brands and whiskey brands can't 
just be whiskey. Like it's about sharing your values. When you look at luxury brands, so Glenfiddich and Balvenie are luxury brands and they're luxury whiskies. Luxury is not the same as it used to be anymore. I mean, luxury for a long time has been, and it still is, like based on heritage and craftsmanship, um, quality, obviously, and like and timelessness. And that still is relevant now, but it's also shared values and cultural relevance. So you need to be able to share what your company believes in, what your brand believes in, not just having a good product. And that's kind of where the sneakers came into it. It's about pushing boundaries is what Glenfiddich's always been about. It's been the leader in single malt since the category started in 1963 when Glenfiddich started the category. So it's always had to lead. It's not, I mean, being the leader is great, but it's also, you don't get an option once you're the leader. There's no one paving the way for you. So you have to push boundaries to keep at the top and keep changing things. And I felt that this was, it's something we haven't seen before. So we don't just talk about pushing boundaries. We actually want to do it. We're doing new things that are a bit different. And yeah, that's where the sneakers came into it. Um, I met Chase Shield, who's in Melbourne, an incredible custom sneaker maker, one of the best in the world. And I think he thought I was mad when I called him the first time, to be honest. And I was like, do you want to make some whiskey-inspired sneakers? And he's like, uh, sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been, a, a, it's been amazing. It's been 10 months um, since I first spoke to Chase. And seeing the first photos of it when we released them on Friday, it's, yeah, I like, you, you feel it. You know, that's, that's why I love this job. It's like when you get to work on this project, and then when you put it out there, and it's gotten a lot of love, and people have really enjoyed seeing them. Thought it, thought it was great. So, yeah, you put a lot of work in, but when it works, then it it makes it all worthwhile. It's been really nice. So, yeah. So the, the Excel spreadsheets can be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You got like way up, you know, the, the cool stuff yeah. and the not so cool stuff. The cool stuff, yeah, especially with William Grant and Sons as a brand ambassador. The cool stuff way outweighs the not so cool stuff <laughs> excellent all right i've got a couple of reader questions to go through uh before we wrap up today mm. uh, i'm going to start with the first one from jane which asks what's the place of japanese whiskey in future whiskey markets i think japanese whiskey and all whiskey in different markets it's got a huge part to play in the future of whiskey i, I think scotch has i mean potentially will always have the the bigger share it's kind of where it started we've got a bit of a head start on the rest of the world but places like japan with their own style of whiskies uh, can help people get into whiskey a little bit more and the same with australian whiskey i think local whiskies well your local distillery is such an important job to play in getting people involved with whiskey you know you might never have thought you were going to drink whiskey but you've been down the road from archie rose here if you're living in Rosebury and Archie Rose is there, you'd be like, yeah, I'll try their whiskey. They're just next door. And then you try the whiskey yeah. and move on to something else. So I think, yeah, for like Japanese, same kind of thing. It's It gives more breadth to the category in different styles. And it's, it's interesting to see what happens with it. Yeah, especially as they've, uh, well, in the last year or so, actually introduced a bit more actually has to be distilled in japan now to be called japanese whiskey right because they, they were they were buying a bit of scotch and just slapping japanese whiskey on the front right is uh, yeah i think uh, telling people about that that now to have japanese whiskey in the label that has to be made in japan like it wasn't before <laughs> what was happening well, because you had basically 
yeah, basically an arbitrage market, right? You can you buy it over here for one price, and you get to slap Japanese for a much higher price. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but I think that comes into play in the next couple of years. Um, um, I'll got another one talking about uh, Australian whiskey and distillers up the road. Uh, Brendan asks, uh, a friend is about to complete a distilling course and wants to crack into the distilling job market. Ross Blaney, do you have any tips or advice, please? Um, Did you catch that? Yes. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I think, I mean, doing the course is a, a great start. The um, general certificate of distilling is a good place to start. I've, I've done that one. It's, it's pretty hard. I mean, it's difficult. You need to put some work into it. Yeah. I think mean, having that basic understanding and to be honest, I think the, the Australian whiskey industry is so friendly that I, th- I would say just go in and ask, just go in and ask them for a job. Just go in and say, can I come and make whiskey with you? Can I do something? Because knowing so many distillers around the country, they, if they didn't have a job at the time, they'd still welcome you in and want to tell you about what they do. Uh, it's like one big family with whiskey in Australia. It's great. So I would say literally just go in and talk to them, find someone and go in and ask them. That should work. The, you know, hit, hit the hit the streets and get asking. Yeah, um, yeah. Ash asks, Ash asks, uh, I wish whiskey manufacturers appealing to a younger market, and if so, what are they doing to make this happen? I think getting more diversity across whiskey is important. Um, and having, yeah, younger than 30-year-olds, I guess maybe getting a little bit younger, but, yeah, having new people drinking whiskey and to do that, it's just, I think it's just changing the way that you talk to people. You know, always say, like, even come down to brand ambassador, and brand ambassadors play a big role in this because it's, you know, pounding the pavement, talking to people. It's it's working out, it's having your own message, but it's a bit of diplomacy. You have to know what your audience wants to know about as well. So if you're talking to a younger crowd, you're probably not going to talk the same way as you would to an older crowd, or you can change it a little bit. You're not changing your values or the information, but it's changing the style in which you're giving them the information. And I think whiskey companies do need to do that uh, because well, it's the only way really to survive is having the next generation of whiskey drinkers. You've got to get them yeah, into because, it. Because that, that older generation, you know, they're going to shuffle off the of this model call at some point. You're going to have to appeal to some new people. Well, and you can't sell it to them after that. <laughs> going to buy any whiskey after that. <laughs> Those, those Facebook ads don't work when they're in the grave. Um, <laughs> no, no more click through. <laughs> that's it, right? <laughs> uh, okay, and last one, and I think this one's a really interesting one. Obviously, in Sydney and Melbourne, Melbourne's had the longest lockdown anywhere in the world. Uh, Sydney, we're, what, I think on, in the 90s on this current lockdown, uh, hopefully with a bit of relief in a couple of weeks' time. Um, Jim asks, what are some of the changes made in the whiskey space that have happened during lockdown uh, in the way that we enjoy whiskey that you would like to see continue? Yeah, I think there's been a few. Um, the Probably the biggest one for me is like online stuff. I know there's maybe a bit of screen fatigue, but I think one thing I'd like to see going is... Don't say that. Don't <laughs> say that. We're on a screen right now. <laughs> no, no, it's not watching. Don't get it now. No, I think but if you've got good content, if you've got good stuff that people want to watch, then this is a new normal medium. People are happy to do this now. So like if we did the first live virtual distillery tour at Balvenie, 
for the launch of the Edge, Edge of Burnhead with our 19-year-old stories from Balvenie. And it was incredible. We did it with Whiskey and Ailment in Melbourne. Um, and we had those, the guys in there making a cocktail. They sent out sample packs. And I kind of hosted from my living room. But I had the guys at the distillery walking around with you know, their phone and the gimbal talking us around the distillery. And we were just having a chat to them. And it was, it was so nice for me just to be able to hang out with the guys at the distillery. And that ended up in what was quite powerful about it. A lot of the feedback was that it was just nice to see that all the Balvenie people kind of just get on and have a good time together. But being able to show people that, like we, I want to get as many people to the distillery as I can. If I could take everyone there, I would take everyone there. And I try to do it with bartender trips especially, like trying to always yeah. up the numbers. Like can I, we took 12 last time. Can we take 15, 18, 20? <laughs> but yeah, now we can take two that. buses. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably be a nightmare, actually. You had 25 yeah. bartenders and herding cats. <laughs> Not a good idea. Not a good idea, my friend. But yeah, I think those, those online um, virtual experiences, as long as they're good and they're engaging, that should keep happening because it's a really good way to learn, a really good way to see where the whiskey's made. And it, yeah, that should happen more. There should be more versions of that. So I want to see that keep going. Great. Um... Ross Maney, where do you want to see whiskey be in five, ten years' time? Pull out your crystal ball, and I'm going to get you to predict a few things. Or, okay, have I'll a sip, and then get predictive. <laughs> where, where do you want to see it in about five, ten years' time? Um, what's really exciting for you that you see happening now that you want to continue? Hmm. I think it comes back to Nothing? something. Right. We can edit there. <laughs> yeah, you cut that thought out there. No, it, it's, it, it takes about a thought for this one because I think it comes down to some of the stuff we've been talking about. What drives me in whiskey is changing perception. That's one of the things that drives me in whiskey is changing people's perceptions of what whiskey is. And I think everyone has to do that. We all have to work towards that, not just William Grant and Sons, but the other companies. We have to be able to change perceptions so that it can be more inclusive. We want more people to enjoy whiskey and hear about the stories and where it's from and the culture around it. That's what I want to see. It is happening and it is changing, but I want to see it keep going. You want to see more different people that you maybe, or that maybe wouldn't have thought they'd be into whiskey. I want to see them getting into whiskey and enjoying it. And not just for the liquid, but for everything around it, for the people, the drinks, the bars, you know, going and trying different whiskeys at bars or cocktails. Yeah, we want to have more people interested in the category so that they can enjoy themselves and see more of it. So yeah, changing perceptions, more inclusivity. Um, that's that's what I think should be happening in the next, next five years. And just more good whiskey. That sounds like a <laughs> More good whiskey helps, yeah. <laughs> well, excuse me. Uh, fantastic. Well, Ross, I thank you heaps for uh, joining me tonight to have this chat. It's my mm. first event that I've done in probably two years since Bar Week, what, 2019? Um, I think it's, uh, it's nice to be able to talk shop with you. <laughs> it's nice talking shop with you. It's a chat that I, I always love having. Um, and I thank you really very much for joining me on the first Boothby Talks. Uh, it's, it's Boothby Talks is something that I'm going to want to be doing uh, in the coming months as we reopen. Hopefully, we'll get into uh, actual events in bars and, and uh, uh, having yeah. some conversations, sharing drinks in person. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. Can't wait. And also, and thank you very much for having me on. I mean, this yeah, it's great just having a chat about this stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the Boothby Talks. 
and catch up in person. But also, again, happy birthday, yeah. first birthday. I've enjoyed reading the articles, everything you've written, especially your first birthday article and what you've learned in that year. That was that was great. So, yeah, thank you for doing what you do. We, we appreciate you. it. Thanks again, Ross. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Mm-hmm.